Welcome to this podcast about Hilton Head Island and the Low Country. I am Jay, your host. In this episode, we talk with David Pearson, who was involved with Sea Pines PR and marketing in the very early days. David will share with us the challenges of marketing Sea Pines with no budget, what it was like to work with Charles Frazier, and the story behind the famous photo of Frazier and the alligator as we travel down 278 to Lighthouse Road. David Pearson has had a long and storied career in public relations. It would take days to comb through all he has worked on over his career. He spent time in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations and worked with a number of sports celebrities, including Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer, Joe DiMaggio, Ted Williams, Pete Dye, and many, many more. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. When I decided to start this podcast about Hilton Head, one of my inspirations was Steve Hartman. Steve Hartman did a segment for CBS News called Everybody Has a Story. He would throw a dart over his shoulder at a map of the United States. Wherever that dart hit, he would go there with his cameraman. Upon arrival, he would get a phone book, close his eyes, open it up, and blindly put his finger on a name. They would call that person and proceed to tell their life story. Steve is a master of finding the hidden details of people and bringing them to the forefront. I mentioned in the introduction that David was involved with the famous photo involving Charles Frazier walking next to the alligator. When I discovered his involvement, I thought this is a great story that people will enjoy. Over the course of my career, I have learned that if you dig a little deeper, more often than not, there is always something more to a story. While the story of Frazier and the gator is a great one, we will come back to it a little later in the show. I would like to start with something that happened after David Pearson left Sea Pines for Washington, D.C. I was introduced to David by Jim Light. In the email chain, David talked about that photo and some details I did not know. When I asked David for an interview, he offered to send his book to me about his career for my review so I could do a little research. When I received it, I started reading, and the first 16 pages were absolutely stunning. I've been involved in storytelling for 30-plus years, and while not much surprises me anymore, this story caught me completely off guard. You see, David was involved in one of the most defining moments in American history, the death of a president. It was November 22nd, 1963. David was working in a low-level PR position for the Peace Corps, which was created by JFK in 1961. At 1 p.m., the news broke that John F. Kennedy had been shot in Dallas, Texas. At 1.30 p.m., Walter Cronkite came on CBS and delivered the news that the President of the United States was dead. The country and the world was in shock. At 3 p.m., David was sitting at his desk and the phone rang. David, what happened next? Well, the phone rang and it was it was Sergeant Shriver who was married to Eunice Kennedy, uh, JFK's sister. And Shriver said that Jackie Kennedy had called him and asked him if he would handle the arrangements for the funeral uh, for the weekend. And Shriver said to me, could you come over here to the White House and help me? Well, my office at Peace Corps was located just across Lafayette Square from the White House. So I, I jumped down and ran across Lafayette Square to the White House. I went in and Shriver and a few other people, uh, including Bill Moyers, were there. The first thing they were doing when I walked in was they were making a list of people that they wanted to invite for Saturday morning, the, ne the next morning, for a private viewing Kennedy when he came home. And uh, they were saying yes, no, yes, no. They had 
various lists that uh, Ralph Dung and one of his aides were bringing in. People were suggesting other other people. I'll never forget one one would suggest it was a, a workup softball player named Roy Hoops, who was a freelance writer. And for some reason, he became a friend of Kennedy's. I don't know why, but they invited him to come. And I thought this was really strange. Anyway, the evening went on, and what we did was to prepare the East Room for the body. Dick Goodwin was there, uh, president's speechwriter. Also, Bill Walton, who was a friend of the president's, and sort of took command of the designing of everything in the East Room. For example, Shriver arranged to have the director of the archives bring over a copy of the original magazine spread picture, Harper's Weekly, that had a drawing of President Lincoln lying in his casket in the catafalque in the East Room. And so Walden said, what we want to try to do is to replicate this scene without doing it exactly. So he had some black crepe brought in and put it over the chandeliers to sort of create a more of a, a solemn feeling in, 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 the, in the otherwise splendid room. So then we, when, when we got through with all that, the group had dwindled down to about 10 people. We, we were standing around in the dark waiting, waiting to, for the body. And so about four o'clock in the morning, after we'd been working all night, I heard sound uh, just just in a chill right through me. It was the sound of hood, hood, of Marines marching, carrying the casket into from the front hall down the hall to the east room. They came down. They put the they laid the casket on the catafalque. Which another interesting point. It was the same catafalque that Abraham Lincoln that had, they found it in the in the uh, archives that it was Lincoln's catafalque. They laid him on that. It was a terrifying moment for me because I mean, he was the president's body in the in the casket, and just a few people in the room. We were standing there, and a, pr- a priest was called. A young priest came in with two little altar boys who were about 10 years old, and they lit four candles, and the priest said some prayers, stood back. Then I heard some steps outside, and the door opened, and Jackie Kennedy came in. She had Bobby Kennedy was on her left, and Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, was on her right. I was really surprised to see McNamara because I didn't really realize he was that close to the family. She had on that same nubby suit, and there were these chocolate-looking stains all down the front of it, which is where his head had lain in her lap when he was shot. Came in, and she stood. They stood next to the casket while the priest said a few prayers, and then she knelt down and said a prayer herself. She put her head up against the side of the casket, and it reminded me of, of what a young girl w- might do with her horse, you know, putting her, laying her head up against the side of the horse. I, for some reason, I had these completely disparate ideas going through my head. It was, it was a surreal, surreal moment, surreal time. And she stood back up, and on the way standing up, she stumbled and started to cry. And Bobby came down and picked her up and helped her up. 
and they led her away back upstairs. So then the time came for the limousine to take us to our respective homes. And the next day they were going to have, the body was going to be there in the East Room for, for the family and personal people. And then the next day, Sunday, it was going to be taken to the Capitol Rotunda. And then, of course, everybody knows the funeral was the next day and they took him to Arlington Cemetery. So I got in the limousine and they took me home. And uh, the next day I spent all day watching it on television, just like everybody else. So that was the evening. How many people were actually in that room that evening in the East Room? About 10 people. Do you find it amazing coincidence that you just happened to be one of the very few that were allowed in that room that evening? No, I don't, because I was the number two public information officer. And Shriver, I, I mean, I'm not, sounds like bragging, but he had a certain affinity for me. I don't know. We were both Catholics and we both played tennis. And I don't know. He, he liked me. And so I wasn't surprised when he called to the, the public information office to get some help, to someone to come over to help with the press. Uh, I wasn't surprised that he called me. And, and I, you know, it was perfectly normal for me. It was only later after this whole thing was over that I realized how incredible it was. But at the time, I didn't, I didn't think it was anything special. In your book, you describe a moment with Sarge Shriver where you're following him down a hallway and you came to the president's office. There was a Marine standing there with a chain across that door. Would you share with us what happened at that moment? We came, we were walking from the west uh, wing uh, through the middle of the White House to the, to the east room, the east wing and the east room where we were going to, body was going to come. And on the way, we passed by the Oval Office, and there was the Marine standing guard, and the door was open. You could see inside. And for some reason, there was a television set on, the president's TV set was on. And it was showing clips of Kennedy's speeches, and the speech they were showing at the, that moment was that famous Berlin speech that he made, Ich bin ein, ein Berliner. And that the roaring crowd in Berlin who loved him. So we stood there and listened to that for a minute. And then we started on and Shriver started to say something to me. And his voice caught in, 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 a, in a tear and it, it couldn't, and he didn't say anything, he couldn't speak. He, we, we walked on. For many years after the story was that Jackie really orchestrated everything that happened with the funeral and his return to D.C., but it took an amazing coordinated effort. If you think about it, he was pronounced dead on television at 1.30 that afternoon. At 4.30 in the morning, he's brought into the White House. He had 13 hours to, to do all this preparation. It's just an amazing amount of preparation that happened in such a very short period of time. It is. It is. It is. Well, first of all, Jackie called, Mrs. Kennedy called Shriver from the airplane at the airport when, when she was out there taking the body of the body. She said to him, Sarge, I want him to be buried as, first of all, a naval officer. And then all the other things, a Catholic, a naval officer, and then the president and so forth. And so Shriver said to us, in everything we're doing, guys, keep this in, let's try to keep this in mind what she wants. So that's really all she said to him. She didn't give him all the details. 
he had to come up with all those details of things. You know, the, the horse with the stirrup with the boots backwards in the stirrup and, and uh, the parade, the who was going to be invited, who was coming, when was, what kind of a mass was it going to be? And that's an interesting little sideline there. You know, Shriver's a Catholic too. And so we're sitting there and, and Shriver's uh, asking us what kind of mass it should be. Because as you know, you may know the Catholics have many types of mass. There's a high mass and low mass and so forth. So he said, should we have a high, requiem high mass? And there was a, a fellow there in the group who was a Peace Corps psychiatrist, a young guy named Dr. Joseph English, who's also a Catholic. And so English said, you know, Sarge, he said, I think you should just do a regular requiem low mass because, you know, he didn't, he, he wasn't much much uh, for glitter and, and glove. He says, I'd take the low road, Sarge. And so they did have a, a low requiem mass at the cathedral the next day. Was there anything else in your career that had as much impact as that scene in the East Room that night? No, nothing came anywhere close to it. Not anywhere close to it. No, nothing approached it ever. It's just an absolutely amazing story. And when I read that, I thought <laughs> I can't bury the lead. You know, the podcast is obviously about Hilton Head Island and we're going to roll into that now. But right, after reading right. that, because it's a story that a lot of people haven't heard. That's right. Well, that's why I, after I wrote the book, I took it and put it up in the front of the book because nothing in the book was anywhere even near to compare with the importance of it. And so I said, this has got to be the beginning right here. Let's go ahead and travel back to before you left for Washington and talk about your time on Hilton Head. It was the late 50s. You had just traveled to Havana, Cuba, which was right after the revolution, and then got deported by Castro, which is a whole other story. But you returned to the U.S., you had missed your date to start your master's at Indiana University in Bloomington, and you decide to head to Atlanta to reconnect with some friends that you had met while attending Emory University. What happened next? Well, I got a job with a PR firm in Atlanta. The, the PR firm had a client, a new resort development on Hilton Head Island called Sea Pines, called Sea Pines Plantation, which I had never heard of. But I was given that uh, as the account executive on that on that account. And the guy who ran the PR firm, Pat Moore, took me up, drove me over there from Atlanta to Savannah in the Hilton Head, introduced me to Charles Fraser and Pete Cottle, who were two guys that were developing it. And uh, from then on, for the next few months, <clears throat> I, I was going back and forth between Atlanta and, and Hilton Head doing all the PR. And uh, I I, I guess during that period, I established some kind of an affinity for Charles Fraser and and Pete Cottle, and they for me, because one time I went over and they called me in their office and said, we'd like you to leave the PR firm and come be our director of public relations and stay here full time. So that was how I got to Sea Pines, and I started off as a director of PR, and then Gradually, over two years that I did it, I was promoted to vice president of marketing. What year was that? And when you arrived on Hilton Head, what were your impressions of the island? Late 1959, they were building the William Hilton Inn, which was the first uh, resort there. I was just really impressed with the island because I am, I've always been a conservationist. 
the natural beauty of the island, not just the long slate white beaches, but the trees, everything about the lagoons, everything about the island was just, it was like a fantasy place. I couldn't believe that a place like that existed. We haven't had a lot of guests talk too much about the William Hilton Inn because a lot of them were a little bit later. What was that inn like? What impact did that have on Sea Pines and the island? Well, the inn was critical. The inn was critical. First of all, Charles, who was a, a genius at the land plan, I mean, his the land plan that was created by him and Hideo Sasaki uh, at Harvard was incredible. And one of the things the plan called for was a resort. In order to sell real estate, they figured they had to have a place for people to stay when they came over to the island. And they didn't want to have a resort in the Sea Pines community because they wanted that to be quiet and non-commercial. So they built the William Hilton Inn in Forest Beach, about a half a mile north of, of Sea Pines Plantation. The inn had, I'll never forget, it was an 80-room inn. It was two-story. Uh, was built out of California redwood and savannah gray brick. I mean, I've even, I'm a, can, I can quote the press release, you know, announcing the end. I can remember every single thing about it, but it was very successful. The biggest problem we had, and, and you, I think, know this, is that how do we get people off the highway, US 17, which was the ocean highway between New York and Miami, how do we get them off? 17 over to Hilton Head and to the William Hilton Inn because these were all country roads. They didn't have any highways and running back and forth in it. So how the heck were we going to do that? There was an architect who'd come from Harvard and come down with Charlie named John Wade. He was one of the creators of the prototypical Sea Pines houses. John Wade and I came up with a plan to create a series of signs, which basically were poles with arrows, with big wooden arrows of all different colors, green, blue, red, and yellow, very festive looking signs at every single intersection between US 17, where you get off just north of of Savannah, between there and through Bluffton and through Hardyville, and on to Hilton Head Island, and then once on the island, all the way down to 78, to Sea Pines, to the William Hilton Inn. We created these, and it was really, (laughs) it was all stuff we were making up because nobody had done anything like that before. I had to get permission from the state to be able to put the signs up on the state property, and then property that was owned by individual farmers, of which there were many black and, and white alike, I had to go with a pocket full of bills, dollar bills and five dollar bills. I had to go and lease space at the corner of each one of these roads from the person, the farmer usually, who owned the property. And they would sign a lease, which I had on a clipboard, to lease that property for 10 years for me to put a sign up there. So we had <laughs> spent about four or five hundred dollars on on leases for people to put those signs up, and thus people were able to uh, come across from U.S. 17, going people coming down to Florida, uh, down 17, and people going back up north uh, on U.S. 17. 
that was definitely one of the biggest challenges for Fraser when he started Sea Pines was getting people to the community. For a while, they didn't even have a bridge. And, you know, fortunately, through a lot of work through the legislature and the state and working with some other folks, we're able to get the, the first swing bridge built. When you first met Charles Fraser, what was your opinion of him? And did that change over time? Well, when I first met him, I was impressed with the fact that he was so young. He was two years older than I was. I was 25 or 26 at the time. He wasn't even 30 years old, and his partner, Pete Cottle, wasn't 30 either. That was the first thing that impressed me, that their youth. Secondly, they're, they were both brilliant. They're just talking to them. Uh, was an experience. I mean, the books that Charlie was reading, the music he was listening to, you know, it was all, it, it was just, I was, I was like on a very high level and that, that impressed the heck out of me. Charles had a habit of coming into people's offices and just starting to tear things out of <laughs> magazines. Did he ever do that to you? Oh yeah. Yes. When I, I first got married, living at Hilton Head, I'd been there about a year and I got married. So I brought my wife who was from St. Louis. I brought her home to Hilton Head and we had a little place we were renting and Charles would come driving up, walk in the door, say, hello, David. Hello, Anne. And he'd go into the living room and pick up whatever magazine we were reading, which typically would be like Esquire or Vanity Fair and sit there, not say anything, thumb through the magazine and then after half an hour or so, put it down, walk out, say goodbye, and leave. Well, Anne thought that Charlie didn't like her. She would say, oh, he doesn't like me. I said, why do you say that? She says, because he comes in the house and reads a magazine and walks out and never says anything to me. And I said, Anne, that's just the way he is. That's Charlie. Charlie, <laughs> if he feels like talking, he'll talk your ear off. But if he doesn't, he won't. He's just, just it's the way he is. It took her a long time to realize that that was just a proclivity of his, that he did really like her. Charles was a very amazing and interesting individual. You were involved in two famous photos promoting sea pines. Share with us the one, uh, this would be the first one that was taken with Albert the Gator and one of the secretaries. Oh, okay. The first one with Albert the Gator, actually both of them had Albert in them. Turning, turning it around just a little bit, the first time Albert showed up, he was in the lagoon by the 18th Green. And I had a photographer from the Savannah Morning News taking some pictures. I had hired him as a freelance, and he was taking some pictures for me. because We didn't have any pictures at all. So I had this idea of luring the alligator over to the side of the fairway and then taking this girl, this model that we had, Miss Savannah, actually, she had Bermuda shorts on. She had a golf club. And so I positioned her uh, as if she was looking for her ball uh, on the side of the lagoon. And we lured the alligator with a fishing pole with it's a chicken wing on the end of it. We lured the alligator across the lagoon right up to the bank. And then when the photographer was ready, I, I tapped the alligator on the snout and he opened his mouth and the photographer took the picture. So the picture that we got that we sent out to UPI and it went all over the world was a girl, a, gol a golfer, standing there by the edge of the lagoon looking for her ball and the alligator in front of her looking like he was getting ready to, to eat her. He had his mouth open. And it was a it was a sensational picture. It got played 
which told me the main lesson I learned about marketing coupons in those days. That one of the things that we could use was nature. And that was what distinguished in those days coupons from all the other resorts up and down the coast. The other story, okay, a couple of years later, we had uh, attracted uh, the attention of the Saturday Evening Post, and they sent a photographer down to take a picture. So we talked to him, and he said, well, what is it that's typical? What is it that's symbolic and typical? And we said, the alligator. Albert. So he said, well, I got to have him up on the land. I'm not going to take a picture of him in the water. So we had never gotten Albert out of the lagoon. We had, so we all got together. He had a pickup truck. The supervisor, the golf course supervisor, Don Quinn, lured the alligator into a loop, a rope with a loop, and grabbed him behind the legs. And we, we pulled him up. He was about seven feet long. We pulled him up and put him in the bed of the truck and drove him across the street to where the, the golf pro shop was. And then we un, untied him, and he jumped down. And uh, at that time, Charles Fraser had been at a meeting in Savannah, and he had on a suit, the Brooks Brothers suit, and, and, a, and a, a straw hat, the kind of hat that a young man would wear. And uh, he <laughs> and he walked up and said, what are y'all doing? And we said, we're taking pictures of this alligator. And he, so he walked over to the alligator, and the photographer said, uh, the alligator started walking back across the road to to, work, to his home, to the 18th Lagoon. He started walking. So Charles walked alongside the alligator, and the photographer took the picture. And so here you had this picture of an alligator walking, and Charles Fraser, with a smile on his face, and a suit and tie, walking next to the alligator. So when they, when they ran that picture in... Saturday Evening Post, the series was called People on the Way Up. Uh, it took a two-page spread, and so we called it People on the Way Across. <laughs> and it got enormous, you know, response. So that's the story of the, the using the alligator as a symbol, you know, like Lacoste did with his shirts. Okay, so here is the disclaimer. Do not go anywhere near the gators. Do not try to lure them out of lagoons and please do not tap them on the head with anything. Please leave the wildlife alone right. in Hilton Head. Right. We had a, we, we put up signs in all the lagoons that said, do not molest the alligators. And people thought that was very funny that we would say, do not molest the alligators. Yeah. So for everybody listening, the alligators are very dangerous. They're not to be messed with. And it's actually Absolutely. illegal to mess we, with. But we didn't know. We didn't know what the, we had no idea what we were doing. No idea. Yeah, this is the, you got to remember, this is back in 1960, the very, very early 1960s. So there were, right. were a lot of rules. And, and apparently, uh, Albert was used to being around a lot of the folks that were building the development and had become relatively tame. But please do not go anywhere near the gators. You and your pets and everything are considered bait and food to them. That's so right. please stay That's away right. from the alligators. That is right. Around the same time, you managed to get sea pines and Hilton had featured in Sports Illustrated. How did you do that? Well, it was it was the same thing. We first I, I made a I made a little movie. It was a 20, 25 minute movie. And we didn't have any money, as you know, that we had no marketing budget. So I had to do 
a lot of imaginative things in order to get stuff done. In order to make a movie, we the only thing we had our capital was was lots, you know, home sites, and so we traded a lot a home site worth thirty thousand dollars for a movie to the movie company in Columbia, which cost thirty thousand dollars. So that's how you know everything we would do. We would we would use we had to buy. We would use a lot. We would. We barter by using one of the fairway lots. And so we made a movie and we took the movie to New York and we arranged uh, an office at 44th and Broadway, the Lincoln Building. And then we invited editors from different magazines, newspapers to come and we'd show them the movie and give them some coffee or a Coke, whatever it happened to be. So with Sports Illustrated, we got this editor named Fred Smith, who was the fashion editor. And he, we showed him the movie. He was very interested. And he said, I'm too busy to, to see it, though. So, so we, after we went back home, we kept in touch with him. And we found out that he was flying to Alabama, where his home was. And he had to go through Atlanta. So we chartered a plane and hijacked him off his... When he got off the flight uh, from New York in Atlanta, we hijacked him, put him in a little plane and flew him and flew him over to, to Hilton Head and showed him the beach and the beautiful island. Well, he was very, very impressed. So what he did when he went back to New York, he arranged for the next bathing suit issue. You know, you know what that was, the bathing suit issue they have every year. Yeah, swimsuit issue. Different places in the world. So he arranged to bring down models and photographers from New York and do a bathing suit issue on the beaches of, of Hilton Head. That's how we got in there. What year was that? That was 1962. Was that one of the first years that they started doing the swimsuit issues? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Absolutely. Promoting Sea Pines with no budget was obviously a challenge. What were some of the other creative marketing things that you did to get people to see Sea Pines and come to the William Hilton Inn? Well, we had, we saw a few lots and charlie would say go sell a lot I, I went in his office one time and said i needed another typewriter for my secretary and he said go sell a lot that was his answer so i you know go down to the end find a prospect and take him out and sell him a lot and then he'd <clears throat> buy a typewriter anyway we we did have some, a little bit of cash we made the first couple of years so how are we going to spend this money so the wall street journal had a travel section every Friday, travel section, like a two pages. So we, we created a series of, of like four inch by one column ads, very small ads with a real catchy headline and a very, very low price to stay in the end. For example, the first ad said, and, and headline said, no neon. And then down below, the copy talked about coming to the William Hilton Inn on a special introductory offer of $16.50 a night per couple. $16.50 was, that was pretty cheap. Even then, it wasn't much money. So that ad, and then we had another ad <laughs> following it that said, no Nats, G-N-O-G-N-A-T-S, no Nats, exclamation point. And that said, Sea Pines has a very unusual etymological program where we don't have any gnats or mosquitoes come down and find out why 
1650 and so forth. So we had these really creative little ads in, in the Wall Street Journal on Friday and it worked and it brought people down and they came over put the signs <laughs> stayed at the William Hilton Inn. We did stuff like that. We had to, we had to really be creative and we had to really, we tried things that nobody had tried before because nobody had done that. Sea Pines and Hilton Head back in those days, obviously I think somebody actually referenced, referenced it once as a, as a malaria swamp because of all the mosquitoes and all that. How did they manage to eradicate a lot of the mosquitoes and, and that's okay. Well, they hired a, an entomologist from the university of South Carolina named Dr. Frank something. I can't think of his last name. Anyway, he came down, he did research and he figured out a way to eliminate the breeding places. The, the mosquitoes were breeding in shallow standing water. What he did was to encourage us to create canals, lagoons, with deeper water. And the mosquitoes can't breed in, in, in deep water. They can only breed in very shallow water. So instead of having these just shallow wetlands, we, we created lagoons, which defeated the breeding cycles. And then he had uh, locks installed so that the tides would go in and out and the, there would be activity in the water. He did a lot of things that were that were natural things to do, but not with pesticides or herbicides. He didn't use those. That's great. That's the first time I've actually heard how they got rid of the mosquitoes. And it's fantastic. They found a way to do it without dumping a bunch of, of chemicals and pesticides. After you left for Washington, you went on to quite a storied career in public relations. Did you maintain any connection to the island after you had left? Always. I always had a connection to the island with Charles Fraser. It never ended. And then the different people that he brought in, John Getty Smith, who took my place, and Jim Light and Jim Chafin, who, who ran it, Tom Gardo later, they they all, all the people subsequent to to me, uh, I, I, be, I became friends with them. My family and I would go there every summer on vacation. You take, we rent a house for a week every summer for years and years and years. In fact, my son, Chris, has just rented a house uh, in Sea Pines for a week in the month of August this year. What are your favorite things about Hilton Head? My favorite things? Well, first of all, the thing that's the most notable about Sea Pines is the plan the fact that charles created a plan that nobody ever had to cross the street to get to the beach those cul-de-sac roads that he built so that was one thing you could just walk down the walkway to the beach another was this wonderful golf courses pete dies harbor town and uh, the other two courses uh the tree cover the canopy the fact that there was a rule charles had that no house no building should ever exceed the tree the top of the trees the height of the top of the trees so that's why when you if you fly over the end of the island sea ponds you don't see anything because everything is covered by the canopy of the trees and by the way he carried that same principle to amelia island jacksonville which is the same thing if you go there you'll see nothing but trees so th those are the main things that i love about the backhill in your book, you reference an article you wrote called You're Not Playing the Course, You're Playing the Designer. Pete and Alice Dye built the Harbortown Golf Links. How is that course different than other courses on the PGA Tour? Well, first of all, Harbortown Golf Links, designed by Pete Dye with uh, some advice from Jack Nicholas at the time. First of all, 
it was 6,600 yards long. It is 6,600 yards long. Whereas most championship golf courses are at least 7,000 yards long. So first of all, it was a, it was a shorter course. By being shorter, didn't make it easier because the holes became tighter. The fairways were narrower. The greens were smaller. There were pot bunkers, Scottish pot bunkers around the green. So if your ball went in there, it might take you two to get out of it. And so there were these peak die characteristic touches like uh, shoring up the side of the lagoon by, with uh, railroad ties using natural materials like wood and so forth instead of concrete and and of course every the minute that people the the pros saw it they just they'd never seen anything like it they couldn't believe it the first round arnold palmer shot 80 his first day he won the tournament of course but he shot 80 the first day the pros don't like it when they can't shoot under par right (laughs) would you talk a little bit about the genius of charles frazier by placing what is now a world-recognized symbol in the lighthouse at the end of the 18th fairway? Yes. Well, Charles Lighthouse, which he insisted on and uh, which was suggested by uh, a New York oh, uh, editor of House Beautiful magazine and was uh, everybody said the people at the time were saying, that's terrible. It's a commercial idea. It's too, it's, it's a tawdry, uh, it, it's stupid. But he insisted on it and uh, and the way it was painted. And it became, of course, through the tournament, it became ultimately the symbol of sea pines. What distinguished sea pines, what's really most important about sea pines, and Charles Fraser, indeed, is the fact that he revolutionized seaside resort communities. He revolutionized it. Before him, if you go to beach resorts like Anywhere from Martha's Vineyard to Tybee Island, you'll see houses built on the ocean. And then you'll see a road, a highway or a road behind them. And then all the other houses are west of that, are farther down. Well, he realized that every kid that wasn't on the ocean had to cross the street. So he designed, he and the in, in his Ayo Sasaki designed a series of cul-de-sac roads with walkways paralleling the roads so that no matter where your house was, it could be on the fourth or fifth lot row back from the ocean, you could walk to the beach without crossing the street. And then he had the access road way back, you know, a quarter of a mile back behind the uh, the access, uh, the little roads. So that was one huge thing that he created. And then the other was all the, the rules that he made that of uh, planning, for example, you were not allowed to cut down a tree larger than 16 inches in diameter. You were forbidden to cut down a tree. You couldn't build a house higher than the canopy of trees. Um, all the houses had to be built of natural materials, like mainly like wood, but not <clears throat> stucco or, or, or CBS houses. And all these other small, well, every house had to have a, a drying yard for, you couldn't just put string up a, a, a wire in your backyard and, and, and dry your clothes on it. You had to have a drying yard. It had to be enclosed with a fence so that it, it prevented people from, you know, hanging up their clothes like that to ruin the aesthetics of the neighborhood. There was a limit put on how many nights 
you had to have you had to be able to stay there three nights in order to be able to rent something that would keep keep the neighborhoods from having people coming in and out in and out in and out every day and all those kinds of seemingly small and insignificant rules together it was a gestalt the whole was greater than the sum of its parts and that's why C. Pines and Charles Fraser was so important and those principles have been used all over the world. I spent my whole career, 50 years, doing PR and promoting environmentally sustainable communities like that all over the world, all over Mexico and South America, the Caribbean, the United States. And they use those principles, most of them. Or if they didn't, I tried to get them to, <laughs> get them to do it. Arnold Palmer won the first Heritage. I believe he shot one under par to win the tournament. In your book, you tell a story about Palmer doing a photo shoot with an ad agency at Bay Hill down in Florida. On the tee at the 17th where they were shooting, he and his caddy had a disagreement, which turned into a pretty funny moment. What happened there? We were doing a photo shoot for the ad agency and uh, for, for Palmer's line of clothing. He was on the 17th tee. And uh, it's a par three hole over water to an elevated green with a bunker in front. And it's, I think it's something like 217 yards. So he goes, he, he has a caddy, a local caddy there, and he's got his back. And he goes over and the caddy hands him a three iron. Uh, and he says, uh, okay. So he takes the three iron and he hits the ball and it goes in the water. So he he goes back and looks at the caddy. He says, give me a two iron and throws it, grabs a three iron. She jams it down in the, in the bag, takes a two iron, goes back, tees it up, knocks it onto the front of the green. And it rolls up about four feet from the cup. And he's big smile on his face, walks back, saunters back over to the caddy. who's standing there with the bag and hands him the two iron. And the caddy says, you still a three iron. <laughs> I love that story. I just love that story. Knowing for, for those who don't know, Arnold Palmer is from Latrobe, Pennsylvania. He <laughs> was a very approachable guy, had a great sense of humor, and you know, he's a very, very lovable character. And a lot of people enjoyed watching him play on the PGA Tour. He had a huge fan base in Arnie's army. And just, I can imagine in my mind what that moment was like. And, and while he may have been hot about it, I'm sure later on, he just you know laughed at the fact that he picked up that two iron and put that ball right by the hole. He told the story in, in the Bay Hill at his, uh, at his clubhouse over and over again. I heard that story. He him tell it two or three times. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I am absolutely sure he shared that story more than once. If you had to pick one thing that you believe had the biggest impact on Hilton Head Island, what would that be and why? One thing about Hilton Head? Yeah, whether it be infrastructure, the Cross Island Parkway, you know, some of the developments. If there's one thing that, that happened over the years from the late 50s until now that has had the biggest impact on the island and its growth, what do you believe that that is? I think the thing that's had the, the biggest impact, well, clearly... The thing that's had the biggest impact was the building of the bridge across from Bluffton across to Hilton Head, 1956. I mean, before that, there was a ferry, and you put your car on the ferry over in Bluffton and go across. But that, you, could, you know, clearly that limited the number of people that could come. So that bridge was the most important thing. Beyond that bridge, I have to say 
you know, even though people might disagree with me, I have to say that Charles Heritage Golf Tournament every year has been enormously important to the identity and the image of the island. Yeah, there's a great story uh, that Pete Dye tells in the book called My Life with Charles Frazier. He was building the course, and the head of the PGA calls Pete Dye when they had determined that they were going to host uh, the Heritage that first year in, in November. And he calls Pete Dye, and he says, Pete, I want that. I want the sand to be in the sand traps for at least six months before the tournament. Pete's like, sure, not a problem. And they, at this point, is probably six, seven months out, and they, he hadn't even started building sand traps yet. So <laughs> it's just a great moment with Pete Dye going, yeah, not a problem at all, and you know, don't worry about it. Typical Pete Dye. Charles Frazier passed away in a very tragic accident in the Turks and Caicos. If you could have one last conversation with Charles, what would you say to him? I'd say. Charles, you've been doing some individual consulting with developers for the last few years, and uh, you have an office in Sea Ponds. And, and I'm just coming toward the end of mine, and I would like to close my PR firm and move up there and join you and uh, be your partner as a consultant. That's what I would ask him. It's an amazing individual. Yeah, he had taken me he had taken me with him to uh, Belize to look at some property on an island that somebody was thinking of building a resort on. He took me along as a consultant and I had hi- hired him my client uh the Rollins family had hired him to come down to Rose Hall in Jamaica, Montego Bay to advise them on their development. So we had, we had sort of shared consultancies back and forth and I would have said to him before he died uh how about you know formally joining forces the last few years but he unfortunately died before i could do it do you think charles frazier had the biggest impact on responsible development than any other developer in the united states without any question david pearson thank you so much for your time we really appreciate it and we wish you all the best well, thank you. I, Jay, I really appreciate your, your uh, doing this and, and your kind words mean a lot to me. David Pearson's book is called JFK and Bobby, Arnie and Jack and David. It is available in the Lighthouse Museum gift shop in Harbortown. It is full of great stories that we did not discuss in this episode. Please pick up a copy next time you're in Harbortown. With that, I wish you safe travels down 278 to Lighthouse Road. 